Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this week's episode, Father Adam discusses paragraphs 1136 to 1209, What is the Liturgy? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! Good evening, everyone. Um, Today we are pressing forward on our treatment of part two of the Catechism, the celebration of the Christian mysteries. Last week we introduced this section, or this part, um, by really defining what um, liturgy is, what this word liturgy means, which means the work on behalf of the people. It is a work, if we recall, both of God. God is the primary agent, the primary worker in worship and liturgy. And also it is the work of the whole people, the whole people of God, the whole church. In looking at that, um, kind of just summarizing what we covered last week, it is the work of the whole trinity the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, his role, of course, um, which we appropriate to him, um, attribute to him. Um, Of course, all three are at work throughout the liturgy, but we are reminded that the Father is the source of blessing, and therefore we, in a sense, also respond in blessing the Father in thanksgiving, It is the Son who abides, whose presence abides in the sacred liturgy. And it is the Holy Spirit who really allows us to participate in the liturgy. He prepares us for the liturgy. He helps us to remember, to recall the mysteries of Christ's life. He um, makes present the mystery of Christ. And he brings us into communion with the whole Trinity and also with all of those gathered for the liturgy. Today, we're going to start where we kind of ended last week, just to kind of even it out, um, at paragraph 113. So we're covering the Paschal mystery in the church's sacraments. So the liturgy is this larger word which we use for all of our worship, Um, of the Lord. In particular, Christ has left us the seven sacraments. The seven sacraments. The um, catechism in paragraph 113 gives us, 1113, 1113, gives us a structure for what's going to come. So we looked at liturgy last week in those first couple paragraphs. This week, what we're going to look at or, um, is what is um, common to all of the, sa- the sacraments, all seven sacraments, what's common to all seven sacraments. Next, in the next several weeks, we will cover each sacrament in particular and look at what is distinctive about those each, sac- each of those sacraments. So... 
this week is, what do the sacraments have in common? I think um, one of the questions that we've kind of set with this section is, how do we worship? How do we worship? So what are the general characteristics of the sacraments? Well, first, we give five names for the sacraments, five titles for the sacraments. Excuse me, four titles. I keep making this mistake. For some reason, I think there should be a fifth category, but there isn't. First, we call them the sacraments of Christ. We call them the sacraments of Christ first because Jesus Christ instituted all of the sacraments. He's the one who started them. When we go through the Gospels, we can find the points where Christ institutes all of the sacraments. And for almost all of the sacraments, there are multiple points where he institutes them. Second, the, we call the sacraments the sacraments of Christ because it is by the sacraments that we are drawn into the mysteries of Christ's life, the events of Christ's life. The sacraments enable Christ's continual presence. And not just his continual presence in his personhood, but also in the events and the mysteries of his life. And then third, we call them the sacraments of Christ because it's the power of Christ that makes them effective. We know that it is Christ who is ultimately celebrating the sacraments. It's his power behind it. And I would also say it's a share in his life behind it as well. We call the sacraments the sacraments of the church. So the first is that they are the sacraments of Christ. The second is that they are the sacraments of the church. How are they the sacraments of the church? Well, first of all, the Catechism reminds us that just with the canon of sacred scripture, what books make up the, um, the Bible... The same with what things that we find from the apostles, handed on to us by the apostles, are a sacrament. Well, who makes this decision? Who discerns this? It's the church who discerns this. We don't see written in Scripture what are the books of the New Testament. It's the church that has to discern this by the gift of the Holy Spirit and through the magisterium, through the teaching office of the church. In the same way, it is the church who has come to understand the number and what makes the sacraments. Instituted by Christ, left to the church, it is really the, the, it was the role of the church to discern which were the sacraments and which were not the sacraments. Paragraph 118 gives us two other reasons why we call them the sacraments of the church. They are of the church because they are by her and for her. 
by her and for her. They are by the church in that the actions of Christ are working through the church in the sacraments. So the church, through her ministers, does the sacraments. Of course, it is Christ who is working through them. They're also for the church because they build up the church. And we see this especially in the sacraments of initiation, where people are brought into the church. And then also the sacraments of service or the sacraments of vocation, in which the church, um, through these sacraments, is enabled to do its mission, to do its work in the world. A fourth reason why we call them the sacraments of the church is that um, through them, all of the church, the church in heaven, the church here on earth, is drawn up and and united and is revealed as um, the body of Christ. We are united to the... It's through the sacraments that we are united to Christ as the church. Five, we call them the sacraments of the church, especially because of the ordained ministry, who are the primary celebrants of most of the sacraments. The fact that there are these ministers called by the Lord and set aside through ordination, um, through priestly or diaconal or episcopal ordination, It reminds us that it is Christ who is the primary agent. So it's interesting that, just as we've talked about this quite often, that the mission of Christ and the Holy Spirit is a joint mission, and the mission of the Church and the Holy Spirit is a joint mission. In the same way, the mission of Christ and the Church is, is, is really one and united. And so on the one hand, these ordained ministers are a sign that the sacraments are of the church. They're also a sign, the the ordained ministry is also a sign that Christ is working through them, that it's not the congregation that's somehow creating these sacraments. Then finally, we call them the sacraments of the church because many of the sacraments— baptism, confirmation, and holy order, they leave an indelible mark, a seal on our souls that especially reveal our membership in the church. We call them, so we call them the sacraments of Christ, the sacraments of the church. Three, we call them the sacraments of faith. Why? And that is because of the important connection between faith and the sacraments. First of all, it requires um, a lead-up of faith for the reception of most of the sacraments. The Catechism reminds us of the importance of evangelization that both leads to the sacraments and flows from the sacraments. And that the sacraments are an opportunity to assent in faith to the Word. 
Paragraph 124, I think, is important um, for us. One, because it introduces an important concept, um, this idea of lex orande, lex credendi is the Latin, the Latin line. The church's faith precedes the faith of the believer who is invited to adhere to it. So even in, say, the case of infant baptism, infant baptism is the classic example that the, um, the faith of this infant is supplied. Someone stands up and proclaims the faith on behalf of this child to be baptized, namely their parents and their godparents. But even before that, it's the whole church who assents to that, the church's faith. This is the case with all of the sacraments. Some faith, quote-unquote faith, is necessary for all of the sacraments. That faith is the church's faith. Faith in Christ, and that he has established these sacraments, and that he works through these sacraments. And it's the church's faith that proceeds the faith of the individual believer, who is invited to adhere to this. I think the the great biblical image of this is the Annunciation, where Our Lady, the the angel Gabriel comes to Our Lady and says that she is going to conceive and bear a son who is the Lord. And Our Lady says, yes, I do, I can, you know, fiat, so let it be done according to your will. What Mary does there is she accepts on the behalf of all believers the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, the coming of our salvation. Um, Her faith precedes the faith of all of us. If it wasn't for her yes, for her fiat, we would not be able to say yes. She says it first. And so the church has already accepted the graces of these sacraments. The paragraph continues, When the church celebrates the sacraments, she confesses the faith received from the apostles, whence the ancient saying, Lex orande, lex credendi, according to Prosper of Aquitaine, 5th century, The law of prayer is the law of faith. That's what that literally means. The law of praying is the law of faith. The church believes as she prays. The liturgy is a constitutive element of the holy and living tradition. So first of all, the way that we worship parallels what we believe. And what we believe is contained in how we pray and how we worship. Um, They're inseparable. So the liturgy should reveal what we believe. And in fact, it contains, and as the Catechism tells us in that last paragraph, is the liturgy is sort of a, um, a, um, a hope chest, a time capsule, you might say, a container that carries with it the big T tradition. 
Now, there are certainly little t traditions in the liturgy, but the liturgy really is um, a constitutive element of the holy and living tradition. So when we say the big T traditions, the seven sacraments are part of this big T tradition. The way that we do the seven sacraments is part of the big T tradition. Um, As we have said with the catechism is that the sacraments, along with morality and prayer, are our response to the creed. They're our response um, of faith, assent. That's why the sacraments are a sacrament of, of the sacraments of faith. Is that when we celebrate the sacraments, it is our assent to what Christ has revealed to us. Based on this important role that the catechism has, in, in being kind of a place for us to assent to the faith, but also the means by which the faith is transmitted and handed on. Paragraph 125 cautions us. It says, For this reason, no sacramental rite may be modified or manipulated at the will of the minister or the community. Even the supreme authority in the church may not change the liturgy arbitrarily, but only in the obedience of faith and with religious respect for the mystery of the liturgy. This paragraph reminds us that, um, you know, not only maybe uh, 1124 was sort of the theoretical of how important the liturgy is. 1125 is the practical is that we don't really have the authority to mess with the liturgy because it's something which has been handed on to us by the apostles and is, a, as the paragraph prior says, a constitutive element of the living tradition. Just as we say, lex orande, lex credendi, the, way, the law of prayer um, parallels the law of belief that what we believe is contained in the liturgy, it's also a test case then of how we approach the liturgy, how we approach the sacraments. If the sacraments, if worship, if the Mass is approached in kind of a cavalier or a sloppy manner or an irreverent manner, then it rightly reflects the level of belief of the person. You know, um, there is a sense, there is this natural virtue called piety, which is also um, a supernatural virtue because of baptism. It is supernaturalized. There's grace behind it, too. It's no longer just a natural virtue. But there is a certain piety um, that is indicative of people who believe. I'm not going to go on to um, any any sort of particular cases to expound on that. But I do think that, in general, it is a test case. The way that a community or the way that a priest celebrates the sacraments indicates, I think, the level that they believe or what they believe. Um, Actions reflect the internal, you know. We know know this. This is sort of a basic 
basic concept of, of observing human nature, is the way that people behave tends to represent what's in their inter, inter, internal heart. So. Then we, we say that the sacraments are sacraments of salvation. This is number four. Actually, there are five points. I don't know why I... There are five points. So there, the fourth is that we call these the sacrament, sacraments of salvation. The sacraments give salvation. They both give and reflect faith. They, both, they also give salvation. Celebrated worthily in faith, the sacraments confer the grace that they signify. They are efficacious because in them Christ himself is at work. The sacraments objectively always work. As long as one has the faith of the church, the intention of the church, and they do them as the church knows that they should be done. They always work. The Father always hears. The Son always makes himself present. The Holy Spirit always transforms. Another important principle. So there's these Latin principles. Um, We've been kind of picking them up um, over the last couple weeks. Um, You know, we had anamnesis. Last week, anamnesis means um, memory, re, the, um, remembering how God has worked in the past. It's a, a crucial part of the Eucharistic prayer. It's a crucial part of every sacrament. Every sacrament has to recall Christ's saving works. Um, there is what is called the epiclesis, which is the calling down of the Holy Spirit. Every sacrament has a, an epiclesis where the Holy Spirit is called down to enable Christ's presence in the sacrament and the presence of his divine mysteries, the events of his life. We just heard this, this beautiful little phrase, lex, credendi, lex orande, lex credendi. Well, now here's a new one, another one. Paragraph 1128, ex opere operato, ex opere operato. Um, ex opere now when you do spell check they're going to try to put opera ex opere operato they always do that to me they try to put opera ex opere operato which means from the work done um the work is accomplished, or by the very fact of the actions being performed. What this means is that when the sacraments are done as they ought to be done, with that right intention, the work is accomplished. What is to be done is done. We say then that the sacraments are always object, they objectively work. They objectively accomplish. So when an infant is brought in, even if the parents don't really believe in the faith, even if the parents are there because the grandparents have applied enormous pressure upon them, we're going to write them out of their will if this child was not baptized. 
Um, even, you know, in these situations, if they come and the priest pours water on the baby's head three times and says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, then the work of baptism is accomplished. That infant's freed from original sin, from any particular sin. I mean, if it's an infant, it probably doesn't have any particular sins, but it's freed of original sin. It's made an adopted son or daughter of the Heavenly Father. It's filled with sanctifying grace. It's justified. Um, it's received, it receives faith, hope, and charity. Um, all of these things. It receives an indelible mark on its soul. As long as what is to be done is done, and the priest who, the person who does it has that intention, then it will be accomplished. Now, does that mean that that child is therefore going to be saved? Or it doesn't really matter whether the parents aren't going to raise this child Catholic. You know, that once grandma dies, they're, you know, the, you know, the, the, um, the charade is over with. Um, the paragraph tells us at the end, 1128, nevertheless, the fruits of the sacraments also depend on the disposition of the one who receives them. Nevertheless, the fruits of the sacraments also depend on the disposition of the one who receives them. So yes, that child um, whose parents were pressured into baptizing this, this baby because of aggressive grandparents, um, that child has been forgiven of original sin, has become a son and daughter of the Heavenly Father, has um, received faith, hope, and charity, received this indelible mark, etc., 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 all of the graces of baptism have been done. A tree has been planted, we might say. A, a nice apple tree has been planted. Will that apple tree bear fruit? Well, that depends on whether the kid is going to grow up and respond to those graces. So the sac sacraments objectively always work. However, in order for fruit to bear, subjectively we have to respond to those graces that are given to us. We have to accept them and cooperate with them. It's not a magic trick. Nevertheless, the fruits of the sacraments also depend on the disposition of the one who receives them. 11.29, the Church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. That's why we, another reason why we call them the sacraments of salvation. Then finally, we call them the sacraments of eternal life. Why? Well, they open us up to eternal life, but also they're a share already here and now in eternal life. Heaven is made present. The saints and the angels are gathered around us. So now we switch. 
we switch um, to 11.35 to look, we've defined what the sacraments are. Now, what are the elements of the sacraments that all of the sacraments have in common? Or at least what do they kind of share in common? A lot of this is about the logistics of the sacraments. Who celebrates them? How are they celebrated? When are they celebrated? And where are they celebrated? So a lot of this is kind of, um, you know, basic understanding of the sacraments. So first of all, who celebrates? Every sacrament has someone who celebrates them. Well, first of all, it's interesting, the Catechism reminds us in 1137, that the sacraments are, first of all, celebrated by all of the saints and angels in heaven. That they are, first of all, a share in the heavenly liturgy. This is an interesting, of course, you know, because when, when I think of, well, who are the celebrants of the sacraments, you want to just go into, well, what? you know, what can priests do and what can deacons do and, you know, what... But the Catechism says, well, first of all, the first celebrants of the sacraments are the saints and the um, angels in heaven because it's a share in, in the eternal heaven. And it is a reminder that all of us in a... Um, all of the church celebrates the sacraments. All of the church celebrates the sacraments. Though there might be a celebrant, uh, I accent the N-T at the end, the whole church, both in heaven and on earth, um, celebrate the sacraments together. So whenever we're gathered for the sacraments, all of the saints and angels are gathered with us. But then we talk about, um, in a more earthly sense, the sacraments. The whole community, the body of Christ, united with its head, celebrates. We know that Christ is the the primary celebrant of all the sacraments. He's the power behind the sacraments. He's the one accomplishing the work of the sacraments. And because we are all uh, mysteriously drawn into communion with him as his body, he is the head, we join him in that celebration of all all of the sacraments. Therefore, liturgical services pertain to the whole body of the church. They manifest it and have have effects upon it. But they touch individual members of the church in different ways, depending on their orders and their roles. So there are different orders and roles in this celebration of the sacraments. We're reminded in 1142 again that Members do not all have the same function. Ordained ministers act as an icon of Christ the priest. Since it is in the Eucharist that the sacrament of the church is made fully visible, it is in his presiding of the Eucharist that the bishop's ministry is most evident, as well as in communion with him the ministry of priests and deacons. For the purpose of assisting, this is 1143, the common priesthood of the faithful, other particular ministers, ministries 
have existed, not consecrated by the sacrament of holy orders, um, but nonetheless supporting it. Servers, readers, commentators, members of the choir, um, other things like that. If you remember when we covered the church in the section on the creed, um, we talked about how everyone shares in the priesthood, the, prof the prophetic office, and the kingly office of Christ. And that in the laity, that those are lived and served in the church, in the life of the church, and in the world. So in the case of the priesthood, in the world, the laity sanctify the world by their holiness, by their witness, by their prayers, especially, um, you know, in, in their bringing the faith and incorporating it in their lives and in their work and in their engagement in society. Um, but they live it in the church through various sacramental roles, through these liturgical roles. The 1144 reminds us then of the important word of the section. In the celebration of the sacraments, it is thus the whole assembly that is leitergos, um, um, workers of this public work, each according to his function, but in the unity of the Spirit who acts in all. How is the liturgy sac um, celebrated? How is it? Well, first of all, by means of signs and symbols. Signs and symbols. The sacramental celebration is woven from signs and symbols in keeping with the divine pedagogy. We remember this word from the very beginning of the catechism, this phrase, divine pedagogy. God gradually reveals himself over time. He has revealed himself over time through various signs and symbols. And so the catechism talks about um, three types of signs or symbols, actually four types of signs or symbols. The first are signs of the human world. So these are kind of natural signs that are built into the human condition and culture. Now, um, let me add that some of these, you know, signs that are present in the liturgy actually hit all four of these categories, so it's not like they're um, separated categories there. Um, there's a reminder, so for instance, um, let us take the idea of bread, you know, or the, the sign of bread. Well, you know, bread is a rich human symbol, every, almost every culture at least um, somewhat civilized culture has bread of some sort. Um, you know, so it speaks to the whole human condition. The use of these physical things, of these physical signs, first of all, they point to how God really is engaging the human person as a social being, but second, how the Lord also is engaging the material cosmos. He uses physical things, material things. Inasmuch as they are creatures, these perceptible realities can become means of expressing the action of 
God. Secondary causality, again from our section um, earlier in the Catechism on God the Almighty, the Creator. That there is the primary cause, God is the primary cause of all things, but he uses secondary causes, created things, in order to unfold his will, his plan. He uses them for his actions to express, you know, to, to do the work of his creation. There are signs of covenant. So as God was revealing himself over time, he used different signs to indicate his covenantal relationship with his people, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. Things like some liturgical signs such as circumcision, anointing and consecration of kings and priests, the laying on of hands, sacrifices, and above all, the Passover lamb. So the second type are these signs and covenant signs of covenants, especially those associated with Judaism, found in Judaism, found throughout the Old Testament. Then there are the signs taken up by Christ himself. Christ uses various different signs. He performs healings and illustrates his preaching with physical signs or symbolic gestures. So there are those times where he spits in on the ground and makes mud and then wipes that. There are different signs and, of course, all of the parables that he uses. A rich amount of signs. And then finally we have what are called sacramental signs. Since Pentecost, it is through the sacramental signs of his church that the Holy Spirit carries on the work of sanctification. The sacraments of the church do not abolish, but purify and integrate all the richness of the signs and symbols of the cosmos and of of social life. Further, they fulfill the types and figures of the Old Covenant signify and make actively present the salvation wrought by Christ and prefigure and anticipate the glory of heaven. So what's that paragraph telling us? Well, the sacramental signs, the signs of the sacraments, those outward signs that are used in the seven sacraments encompass all of the other three types. They take on all of those Um, natural signs, those signs of the human world, the signs of our language and gestures and interactions and those things taken from the physical and natural world as signs. Also the signs of the Old Testament, of the covenant. And of course, because the sacraments are instituted by Christ, they incorporate the signs that he used in his public ministry. So these signs, of course, point to a deeper reality, the the mystery of the sacraments. Words and actions are also how the sacraments work. There is a form of dialogue through actions and words in all of the liturgy. We talk about 
how God reveals himself gradually. St. Irenaeus said that it's as if two people coming, becoming acquainted with each other, getting to know each other. In the same way, the liturgy is this sort of dialogue, this becoming acquainted with the Lord, speaking to the Lord. And the liturgy of the Word is a crucial part of that. And in all the celebra- celebrations of the sacraments, the liturgy of the Word ought to be a part of them. And then singing and music, because it is such um, a necessary basic part of the human condition, also ought to be a part of all of the sacraments. But we're told in 1158, but the texts intended to be sung must always be in conformity with Catholic doctrine. Indeed, they should be drawn chiefly from the sacred scripture and from liturgical sources. And then there's also a reference to holy images. Sacred, the sacred image, the liturgical icon, principally represents Christ. Um, if you remember in the section on the incarnation, we talked about because God has taken on a human face, a human body, he can now be depicted in art and in imagery. When is the liturgy celebrated? Well, we talk about the liturgical seasons. Um, So time, you know, and part of this, I think, um, you know, to kind of take a bit of a break, because I do have a a little bit of time. Um, We're running not ahead of schedule, but according to plan. Um, The liturgy is about, the sacraments especially, really reveal an important part of Christ's mission. Christ's mission is to sanctify the whole world. If you remember in one of the versions of the Great Commission, it says, go therefore um, throughout all the world and proclaim um, the good news to all creatures, to all creatures, which is an interesting, interesting little um, bit that he puts in there. Um, Not to just all nations or, or to all people, but to all creatures, all of creation. The idea that the mission of Jesus Christ is to sanctify all of creation. All of creation. And that sanctification um, happens through the sacraments. And so the fact that the the sacraments use material things, these signs, the fact that they use words, um, and then also that they take place within the context of seasons and time. It's all drawing to the point that Jesus Christ, first of all, is Lord of all things, Lord of history and creation, and that he sanctifies creation. So we talk about the liturgical seasons. Um, We know that even from the beginning, the Lord wanted time to be sanctified. He establishes the Sabbath day, the Sabbath rest. Once each week, on the day which she has called the Lord's day, She, the church, keeps the memory of the Lord's resurrection. She also celebrates it once every year, together with his blessed passion at Easter, the most solemn of all feasts. The idea is, you know, um, with the sanctification of time, we haven't flipped um, sheets in a long time. This is uh, 
quite an event, you know. The, uh, so, you know, there, there are different ways of calculating time, you know. There is the year, you know. We can go through this like it's kindergarten again. You know, there are months. <laughs> there are weeks. There are days. And there are hours. Um, so the catechism reminds us that um, really it's, we're about sanctifying all of these cycles. So every year we are remembering the resurrection at Easter. And every week we are remembering the resurrection on Sunday. An important paragraph, um, well, one, um, to lead up to that, this was also the case in the Old Testament, you know, that in the establishment of the Mosaic Law, there were seasons and days of holy days and um, ways in which to sanctify, not just, and this is the important point, not just the year with annual feasts, not just the week with the Sabbath, but also the day through daily prayer and through specifically prayers at different hours. So at the Jewish, um, within the Jewish temple, there were, were the sacrifices that were happening yearly and daily. But then there were also prayers offered at different hours. Um, really, the recitation of the psalms, the singing of the psalms at different hours. In 1166, we're reminded of the Lord's Day, the way in which the week is sanctified, by a tradition handed down from the apostles, which took its origin from the very day of Christ's resurrection, the church celebrates the Paschal mystery every seventh day, which day is appropriately called the Lord's Day or Sunday. The day of Christ's resurrection is both the first day of the week, the memorial of the first day of creation, and the eighth day on which Christ, after his rest on the great Sabbath, inaugurates the day that the Lord has made. The Lord's Supper is at its center, for there the whole community of the faithful encounters the risen Lord who invites them to his banquet. It is the pre Sunday is the preeminent day for the liturgical assembly, when the faithful gather to listen to the word and to take part in the, the Eucharist. Then we talk about the liturgical year. Now, there's actually two calendars going on throughout the whole year. We prefer more of a cyclical time, I guess. But the first one, the first cycle, is what we might call the Easter cycle. So the idea of, um, you know, the Easter is established. We're, we're commemorating Easter, the resurrection. So we, can, um, we start out with Holy Week, the week before that, and then 40 days before Holy Week, the beginning of Lent. Um, and then, of course, 
50 days after Easter is Pentecost. So there is that cycle based on Easter. And then, of course, the Sundays of the year are um, kind, of, um, kind of rotate around that based on, based on the calculation of Easter. But there's also another calendar going on simultaneously, which is called the Sanctoral calendar, the Sanctoral calendar, or the Sanctoral cycle, the Sanctoral cycle. And that is the celebration of the saints. Um, And celebrating their annual cycle of the mysteries of Christ The Holy Church honors the Blessed Mary, Mother of God, with a special love. So the sanctoral cycle, it's not just about the saints, it's also about the mysteries of Christ's life. On this cycle is Christmas, the 25th, the Annunciation, March the 25th. And so, of course, um, four weeks leading up to Christmas is Advent, There are the the celebrations of the mysteries of Christ after Christmas, including uh, the Epiphany and the Baptism. Paragraph 1174 uh, mentions the Liturgy of the Hour. So we've talked about how the week is sanctified by the Sabbath, by by the Lord's Day, how the year is sanctified by both the celebration of Easter and the sanctoral cycle, But then also the day is sanctified by the liturgy of the hours. So in the practice of the church, the liturgy of the hours is intended to become the prayer life of the whole people of God. In it, Christ himself continues his priestly work through his church. So these are the set prayers. Um, So there is morning prayer in the morning, also called lauds. Um, Daytime prayer evening prayer called Vespers, night prayer called Compline. And then the, the, the office of the readings, which is done sometime throughout the day. They essentially um, follow the Psalms and various other readings. The Liturgy of the Hours, which is like an extension of the Eucharistic celebration, so just as, you know, as I said, mentioned earlier in the temple um, system in Judaism, there were the sacrifices, and then there were the prayers offered at the different hours of the day. In the same way, um, we might see it as continuing with the Eucharistic sacrifice and then the liturgy of the hours as the sanctification of the hours through prayer. The Liturgy of the Hours, which is like an extension of the Eucharistic celebration, does not exclude but rather is a complementary way, calls forth the various devotions of the people of God, especially adoration and worship of the Blessed Sacrament. The Liturgy of the Hours are not a substitute for personal devotions, but actually should complement them and support them. Finally, in 1179, we have where is the the liturgy celebrated? 
When the exercise of religious freedom is not thwarted, Christians construct buildings for divine worship. A church, a house of prayer in which the Eucharist is celebrated and reserved, where the faithful assemble and where is worshipped the presence of the Son of God, our Savior, offered for us on the sacrificial altar, altar for the help and consolation of the faithful. This house ought to be in good taste, ought to be in good taste, and a worthy place for prayer and sacred ceremonial. This is paragraph 1181. So the, this, this church this is a house of prayer where the, sac, where the Eucharist is celebrated in the Mass and reserved in the tabernacle, where the faithful assemble, and where is worshipped the presence of God our Savior, offered on the sacrificial altar. Therefore, because these wonderful things that transpire, it should be in good taste and a worthy place for prayer and sacred ceremonial. Then the, the, para, the, the next couple paragraphs talk about the important necessary items that are supposed to be in every church. So, for instance, there should be an altar, a tabernacle, is to be situated in churches in a most worthy place with the greatest honor. The dignity, placing, and security of the Eucharistic tabernacle should foster adoration before the Lord, really present in the blessed sacrament of the altar. There should be a place for the sacred oils. There should be a chair, if it's the cathedral, the cathedra, a lectern or ambo where the word of God is proclaimed, some sort of baptistry with a baptismal font, a place for the sacrament of penance or confession to be heard, and also um, a couple interesting points. In 1185, the church must also be a place that invites us to the recollection and silent prayer that extend and internalize the great prayer of the Eucharist. The Catechism really there encourages a spirit of silent prayer and recollection in the church so that we can internalize and extend the Eucharist. Finally, the church has an eschatological significance. It is, of course, um, because Christ is present in the tabernacle and churches, heaven is present in the building. You know, it is present here. It is made present here. To enter into the house of the God, we must cross a threshold, which symbolizes passing from the world wounded by sin into heaven. In some sense, every time we pass through the doors of the church, it is an experience of death to move from the world into heaven. Then, um, just to end tonight, um, paragraph 1200 to 1206 talks about, it reminds us that um, the word Catholic means universal, which means, um, which um, part of that means a diversity in unity, a diversity in unity. 
and that in the um, growth and the development of the church, um, the same seven sacraments, the same um, Eucharist, has been has um, come to be celebrated, you know, largely in the same way, but with different cultural influences. Um, Though the liturgical life of a local church, through the liturgical life of the local church, Christ, the light and salvation of all peoples, is made manifest to the particular people and culture to which the church is sent and in which she is rooted. The church is Catholic, capable of integrating into her unity while purifying them all the authentic riches of cultures. And so in the life of the church, there are different rites, R-I-T-E-S, R-I-T-E-S. There is the Latin rite, also sometimes called the Roman rite, which includes some other sub-rites, like the Ambrosian rite, which is the rite of Milan, the church in Milan, Italy, and also some of particular religious orders. But there's also the um, several others, the Byzantine, which is um, out of Byzantium, um, the city of Constantinople, which is spread throughout most of Eastern Europe, um, but also throughout um, um, parts of the Middle East as well, and Greece. Um, there is the Alexandrian or Coptic rite um, of Egypt, the Syriac rite, which is um, more of um, what we would kind of consider um, Eastern Syria, um, the Armenian rite from Armenia, um, the Maronite rite, which is around Lebanon, um, and the Chaldean rite, which is um, um, along um, Iraq for the most part. Some of these rites, like the Syriac rite, have spread to India as well. Um, the celebration of the liturgy, therefore, should correspond to the genius and culture of different peoples. Finally, in the liturgy, above all that of the sacraments, there is an immutable part, a part that is divinely instituted and of which the church is the guardian and the parts that can be changed, which the church has the power and on occasion also the duty to adapt to cultures of recently evangelized people. So the catechism ends this section reminding us that there is um, a mutable and an immutable part of the liturgy. There are some things which cannot be changed because they are instituted by Christ and handed on by the apostles. There are others which can be changed and which have changed and adapted um, as, um, as the church and as the liturgy has come into contact with different cultures um, of recently evangelized people. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless and have a great day.